Let's pray and we'll begin this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you're a God who receiveth sinful men and women. And uh, as we look at this parable, we're reminded that you delight, that you seek out uh, those that are far from you, from human perspective, but uh, that you can transform them and change them. And as we look at this parable tonight, may uh, there be a response of just joy and a response of service for what you've done for us. So help us to understand this parable better. And this we pray in the name of Jesus the Savior. Amen. The parable this evening is over in Luke uh, 19, and uh, it is one that uh, the chapter is probably most familiar because of the um, story of Zacchaeus. Most don't remember the parable, but what I had not really connected was that the story of Zacchaeus actually connects with this parable. If you look at verse uh, number 11, this is after the story of Zacchaeus, it says this in the, the account in Luke 19, and as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem because they thought the kingdom of God should immediately appear. So the story of Zacchaeus actually matches up to this parable. I never, you know, had caught that. I just took verse 11 and went, you know, with it from there. Other times I've looked at this parable, but then I realized, okay, context, context, context. And the story of Zacchaeus plays a role in why Jesus has to say this parable. He's got to clear up something that's in people's minds as they see the transformation of Zacchaeus. So I want us to start with the story of Zacchaeus. We're not going to spend much time on it, but it is, uh, you'll understand why he had to say this once we're, we're done. Verse 1, Jesus entered, or entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. He sought to see Jesus, who, was, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, and he was to pass that, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up, saw him, and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house." And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying, that he has gone or was gone to be the guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Jesus said unto him, this day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This uh, story is a story of incredible change. Okay, this is, uh, as we looked at in a previous parable, uh, with men. It's impossible to see someone get saved in this category, rich. But in this case, you have this person incredibly transformed. It's not that he's just rich. He's gotten as rich by, in most people's estimation, ill gain. He's done it by uh, improper means. 
See, you, you know this, Zacchaeus was a tax collector for the Roman government. You say, why Jericho? Why is he living there? Well, if you look at a map of Israel, and uh, you know where Galilee's at in the northern part, you have Samaria in the center, and then you had Judea in the lower part. If you're going from Galilee, you would not go through Samaria, which would make the most sense. All the Jews would go, and they would go down the Jordan River Valley, follow along that, and then come back up at Jericho. They would start this uh, walk up from Jericho to Jerusalem. It was a 17-mile walk. It was a change of approximately 5,000 feet of location as far as height and depth. Uh, Not an easy uh, trip. But Jericho was the point where you entered in. There's really only one road that you can take up to Jerusalem from Jericho. Uh, The story of the Good Samaritan took place on this road. It was familiar to most people. But Jericho was a good place to put a tax collector, collect toll. And he's very rich. You go, why? Lots of people going to Jerusalem. And so he's collected taxes that way. He's an enemy of the Jew. However, even though he's an enemy of Jew, considered to be far from God, he wants to see Jesus. And so in his process, he goes and uh, runs before, finds a sycamore tree, uh, and is there. And as Jesus passed by in a crowd, and, and I've thought about this, I'm guessing Zacchaeus is not the only person that's up trying to see Jesus. Okay, I'm guessing there's other people on rooftops and other things as, as Jesus is passing through Jerusalem that they're looking down. So for Jesus to suddenly stop, Pick out a man in the tree, and it's Zacchaeus, and call him Zacchaeus. He's never met Zacchaeus, because Zacchaeus wants to find out what Jesus is like. So he's never met Jesus, but Jesus calls him Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for I'm, as the song says, I'm going to your house today. And you get the response that you expect from people, why would he go eat with sinners? This is a terrible man. He's the most despicable man in our city, uh, in this culture, in this region. That's him, and the Lord's going to eat with him. This meeting changed Zacchaeus forever. He is, as you have in the blank, he displayed repentance. He realizes that riches have been his goal in life, and so what he says is, I'm willing to give half of what I have, give it to the poor, those in need. I don't need the abundance that I have. And if I've cheated, I will pay back fourfold. I mean, you would expect perhaps one or two times the amount, you know, the, the, the amount back or uh, double back. But there's some places in the, the Old Testament where it says, you know, you pay back fourfold. This man, he goes, if I've cheated you, I'm paying you fourfold back. Because that's not what I should be doing. If I'm a follower of this Jesus and I'm a follower of what he's like, I shouldn't be doing those type of things. I know as a Jew, somewhere in his background, as a Jew, I shouldn't be doing this. This isn't pleasing to God. And for me, the repentance is shown by the fact that he does stuff with his money. Repentance is changing your mind and then your activities. uh, And he shows this by his life. He had met the requirements for being part of the kingdom because he had repented of his sins. Remember what the requirement is? What John the Baptist says? Repent. 
For the kingdom of heaven is hand. It's coming, so you need to repent. And Jesus preaches that same message initially. Well, here towards the end of his ministry, here you've got this man who has repented very clearly. And so you go, well, okay, he's, he's going to be part of the kingdom because he's met what has been set as the requirements to start off with. Jesus made clear, as you have in the second paragraph, to all that Zacchaeus had changed. He was a son of Israel or son of Abraham. Okay, He's truly a Jew. And in Jewish minds, he was part of the, and we have the blank there, he's part of the kingdom. Okay, if he's the son of Abraham, he's part of the kingdom. Now, I would suggest the fact he's a son of Abraham and the fact that he has faith, not that he's just merely a descendant. I mean, how, how is uh, Abraham a part of the kingdom of heaven? Was it because he was just Abraham? No, because he had faith, and God counted that to him for righteousness. I would argue the fact that there's faith here. This is why he's changed and transformed. But he's truly a son of Abraham, and the congregation of people there, or the, the group of people there would have gone, oh, wow, he's part of the kingdom. Incredible change. person can't be a part of the kingdom because they're a robber, thief, whatever else, a traitor of the nation of Israel, and suddenly this man's repenting. He's going to be a part of the kingdom. This would have created a fervency because Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And if you have a person who had once served the Romans, now no longer serving them, he's no longer going to be a tax collector for them. He's putting aside what he's done before. He's not going to do that anymore. People go, well, then we must be close to the kingdom starting because Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, and if he can do this with a tax collector, get him to change his ways, he's headed to Jerusalem, and he's going to set up the kingdom. I mean, what's going to happen here is that Jesus is going to head to Jerusalem, and there's going to be people there that are yelling, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed thou son of David. They, they throw their coats in the street. They've got the, the, the palms in their hands waving this. They're saying, Hosanna, save now. You say, why? Because they're going, he's setting up a kingdom. I mean, that's, that's the fervency that's going on here. People are going, there's all the signs he's setting up the kingdom. He's going to set it up. He's going to go to Jerusalem and do this. Because if he can do this with Zacchaeus, can't wait till he gets to Jerusalem to see what happens there. And that's why you have this anticipation, this, this note here. The people saw the transformation of one who had served the Romans. They saw that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. The anticipation was that Jesus would set up his kingdom and overthrow the Roman rulers. Jesus told the parable to correct the listeners thinking about the kingdom. They had missed the fact that it was postponed. Okay, that's the blank. It was postponed to a later time. You say, when was it postponed? Back when Jesus started telling these parables? Matthew chapter 12, just before all the kingdom parables, Matthew 13, the leaders come and say, oh, he only does these miracles by the power of Beelzebub. He only does this by the strength of the devil. Uh, he's doing these miracles, and the Lord goes, okay, fine. From here on out, the, the kingdom is, is now no longer is it at hand. It's something yet future. He's not talking about it in the sense of it's coming right now. It's something way off in the distance now because you have rejected me as your Messiah. 
And that's why he starts speaking in parables. So Jesus has to tell a parable to this group that's here to help them understand, I am not going to set up the kingdom, but I will communicate to you what I want you to know and what you should be doing while the kingdom is postponed. That's why he's going to tell this parable. Now let's, let's just read this parable. It starts in verse 12. And he said, therefore, a certain old man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him, sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained 10 pounds. And he said unto him, well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a little, very little, have thou authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And likewise he said to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came saying, Lord, behold, here's thy pound, which I have kept uh, laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that that thou didst not sow. And he, referring to the, the master, saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant." Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore, then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury, or we would say with interest. And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. I mean, it's like, why are you giving it to him? He's already got ten pounds. Verse 26, for I say unto you that unto every one which hath uh, shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies which would not that I should reign over them bring hither and slay them before me. Done. Next thing is ascending up to Jerusalem and going there. Okay, that's, that's, that's the parable. Now, first uh, couple of paragraphs here, there's no blanks here, but it, it's, it's important to understand this rings in the minds of the Jews. Jesus told the story of a ruler who went away to officially receive, uh, to officially receive claim. Oh boy. Jesus told the story of the ruler who went away to officially, yeah, there should be no deed there, receive claim to his kingdom. He had left individuals behind to work while he was gone. The citizens were unhappy with the ruler. So he has his own, this, this ruler, whoever he is, sets his servants along, says, okay, you work while I'm gone. He goes away. The citizens that are eventually going to have him rule over them, they're going, please, we don't want him. They're sending notes off going, please, we, we don't want him to be king. This is something that was in the, the nation of Israel's past. They had something like this happen. When Herod the Great died after Jesus' birth, there was a power struggle between the sons of Herod. 
One of the sons, Archelaus, thought he uh, had inherited the right to rule Judea and Samaria, but he had to go to Rome in order to settle with Caesar that he had the right to rule. Okay, Um, you say, when did this take place? Um, At least 4 B.C., because we know Herod uh, died in 4 B.C., just after the birth of Christ, which took place somewhere between 4 and 6 B.C., so as we go again... Christ was born four to six years before Christ, yeah, whatever. Uh, It was their calendar they didn't figure out quite right uh, in 1000, whatever it was. But when Herod died, Herod was a horrible man. He built lots of stuff. Buildings that we look at today and go, that's pretty incredible. But he was a miserable person and wretched and uh, despicable and violent and murderous. Uh, He murdered off wives. He murdered off children. uh, He did all this. We go, why? Because he's afraid he would lose his position of power. But when he dies, he's got several sons that are left that somehow survived their father. And Archelaus is one of them. There's another one by the name of Antipas. uh, And uh, I think there was a third one, if I remember correctly. But somewhere along the line, Herod said, okay, Archelaus, you're going to rule Judea and Samaria if I pass away. That was kind of this conversation that was had. But the people who actually handed out the positions of power sat in Rome. And it was Caesar. I mean, Herod the Great had gotten his position by appealing to Caesar in the Senate. So Archelaus goes to Rome, and he leaves individuals behind to try and run things while it's going on, and he goes to Rome, and he pleads with Caesar, I would like to rule over Judea and Samaria, I deserve the right, I have all the credentials, and he kind of goes and promotes himself there. While he's away, the individuals that are back in Israel are having trouble because the people in Israel are going, we don't want Antiochus, he's much too much like his dad. He's cruel and violent, and we really don't want him. Uh, Please don't let him be king. And so they're sending messengers and ambassadors uh, to Rome going, we don't want him to be king. There's people like the high priest and others who are making life difficult for these individuals that are left behind. Eventually what happens is Archelaus is given permission or given the right to rule over Judea and Samaria. He comes back and you say, what does he do? He takes care of some of the rabble-rousers and he gives positions to those that he had left behind. He gives them more important positions. He comes back after having received a kingdom. So the nation of Israel was familiar with this kind of their story. This would have taken place uh, 34 36 years before this, so many of these people would have been alive or would have had parents that would have been alive during this event when it took place. So it would have been a familiar story to them that a king goes away to receive a kingdom and comes back, rewards his servants and punishes those that don't want him. Jesus is telling this, and it's a parable. He's not using that as exactly a story, but it was a thing that was familiar in their culture. They knew this type of practice. So when you get to that uh, first full paragraph on the back page, or the second page, it says this, in the parable, a nobleman goes away to receive a kingdom. He left 10 servants, and with each of his 10 servants, he left them with a pound. Now you say, what's that? Well, a pound is, uh, the the word behind this in the, the Greek is the word mina. And the word mina is describing something that was the equivalent of three months' wage. 
about 100 days wage. So if we had 100 denarii, like we talked about this last week, the, the, the servants out in the field, uh, the vineyard, they received a denarii, a penny as it's described there. That was a day's wage. That's what most people would expect for a day's wage. Well, what this king does is he leaves each one of these men with a minna, which is an equivalent to about 100 days work, three months, and he says, I want you, and uh, here's uh, the other blank. The servant's orders were to do business, okay? Um, the word in our translation here is occupy, but it's just do business. You take the money, and when you're, you know, you, you go out and try and increase your money. You invest in things, you get businesses, you, you do something with it, but you're trying to increase the value of the money that you have there. You, you're, you're doing business, you're doing work, but you're doing it with this money I'm about to give you. And so he goes away. At the same time, the citizens in the land, you read the statement of how they're describing it, verse number 14, we will not have this man to reign over us. I mean, if we're looking at this as Jesus is going up and he's about to have the triumphant entry into Jerusalem in the same chapter, within a week's time, there's going to be people standing before Pilate going, we don't want this man. We have nothing to do with this man. Crucify him. Away with him. We have no king. We have no king but Caesar. So these are, th- this is echo or echoing, pre-echoing, whatever that means. What these people are going to be yelling in about a week and a half's time. We will not have this man. So eventually, as you read the parable, eventually the nobleman comes back and does a review of what his servants have done. One servant had an increased investment of 1,000%. He had one minute, he comes back, he's got 10. And so the Lord uh, sees that, and another one had increased his 500%. He had one, now he's got five. And so he's just kind of doing a review of the services there, and, and uh, you have this. So they were given responsibility when the king sets up his kingdom. Uh, you, you get 10 cities to rule over and be responsible for, administrate. You get five to administrate in this kingdom that I'm setting up. Uh, and then you get the one guy who's, yeah. And he comes and the servant uh, showed a complete lack of faithfulness to his master. What he uh, says, he did nothing with his responsibility. Uh, you read a statement there. He goes, you were, a, um, verse number 11, I feared thee because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down and reapest that thou didst not sow. Uh, basically, he's an austere man. I remember reading this in a commentary one time. This is the type of man who could get blood out of a stone. You know, he could, he could, get, he could get anything out of anything. He could squeeze, you know, the last drop out of anything. That's the type of man he is. And this man goes, well, I knew, you know, you, you do it that way, but I, I figured I, I don't really want to lose this and mess it up or anything, so I just kind of, you know, set it aside, just left it there, didn't do anything with it because I was afraid I would do something wrong with it, and um, yeah, I, I know that you're the type of person who doesn't like losing money and that type of thing, and so I, I just left it. Nothing. So what you have is that his minute was taken away, given to the servant who had the most, been most responsible, and you say, well, I don't feel like it's fair that he gives it to the one who had 10. Uh, that, that's not answered in this parable. 
Okay, why didn't he give it to the one who had five? So he has six now. I, I, I don't know, but he gives to the one who has been the most faithful. The lesson was that the individual who is faithful to his master will receive greater responsibility later. That's very important. Because when we start talking about the application of this, it begins to make real sense. The citizens who outright rejected the master were removed from the kingdom. Okay, they're, they're gone. They're executed. I mean, I put it removed, but you know, let's put it in simple terms. They're executed. They're not a part of the kingdom. They're just drummed right out and, and executed. So what's the interpretation? And this is where we start getting into things for us personally, and this really starts to have some impact in our thinking and uh, uh, the future. The master who goes away is clearly Jesus. Okay, after his resurrection, he goes to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God interceding for us. That's one thing that he does. He intercedes for us when we come in the presence of God. He claims us as his, uh, and uh, we can go into the presence of God because of him, and he intercedes in our place. He's a great high priest. But the other thing that he's doing is that he's sitting waiting at the right hand of the Father until all of his enemies are made his footstool. He's waiting for the kingdoms of the world to be ripe for him to come back. All the enemies are set up for uh, their destruction. And so Jesus right now is one who's waiting for his kingdom. It's not, it's not right now. I mean, th- this is what he's teaching here is it's delayed. He's going to go away in, in, in about 50 days' time. And as you go a week and then you add another 40 days, this about 50 days, he's going to be gone and resurrected back to heaven. Jesus is leaving. And what for? Because he's waiting to come back to set up his kingdom. Jesus is the, the, the master in this story. The servants are the followers of Jesus who are given a responsibility while he is in heaven. And you go, well, what's the responsibility? I would argue that it's this. The gift given to his followers is the message of the gospel. Okay, that's the blank. The message of the gospel and to live out that good news, the gospel, until he comes back. You go, I, I, don't, I, I don't know. You know. And I'm going, okay, so what's the business of what we're supposed to be doing while the master's away? Think about the the last statement in a book that's all about the kingdom, a gospel that's all about kings and kingdom and all of that. It's the book of Matthew. And you get to the end of Matthew, he's he's going away in the ascension, but his last statement is this, "'Go ye therefore and teach all nations.'" baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, which means you're bringing them to salvation, the knowledge of who Jesus is and how to be saved. And then teaching them to observe whatsoever I commanded you, and lo, I am with you. Behold, I'm going to be with you even unto the end of the... Okay? It's translated world in ours. It would be much better for our understanding. It's not the end of the world. It's the end of our age. You go, what's the age we live in right now? It's the age of the Gentiles. They're doing whatever they want. The kingdoms of the world are doing whatever they want. There's going to come a time where we have a new age. And you go, what's that? That's the millennium. But until the Lord comes back to rule and reign, 
His servants, his followers are given this message. You go out and you share the gospel of what it means to be saved. That this one who's in heaven right now actually came and died to pay your your penalty so that you can be in his kingdom someday. And you can be with him. And and this is the message that we have. That that is what we ought to be having as our business. To give that message and to live that message out. Okay, what, what does gospel living look like? Well, it's a people who understand that they've got a Savior who saved them and they want to reflect that Savior. That's gospel living. So you live it out, you speak it out, uh, but you're doing business until the Lord comes back. So th- this is what this is talking about, that they're given this business to do. The back page, uh, you have this. The citizens are the Jews who rejected Jesus. In a few weeks... They would publicly declare that they would not have this man, Jesus, to rule over them. But I will say this, the citizens also represent all those who do not want Jesus as their king, or you might want to put it in there, as their Lord. See, this is a statement that you'll find in the epistles, and you'll find it in the book of Acts, that this is a defining statement of whether or not a person's a follower of Jesus Christ. It's this, that they would say that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you say, well, what's the difference? Uh, why, did, why is that important? Because in Roman culture, they would promote this, that Caesar is Lord. So for Christians to start using that terminology to say, Jesus Christ is Lord, you're saying, I'm submitted to him. He is my master he is my lord he is my king and for someone to claim that is to say okay i'm going to follow him i'm in his camp i'm doing his thing but you got a lot of people in this world that are going i don't want jesus as my lord i don't want him as king he can't tell me what to do why i you know what i don't want him because if i follow him i lose out on everything so i'm not going to have him as my king i'm king i'll do my own thing well the world's been doing what the Jews did. Well, have not this man to be our king. And they've been doing it the last 2,000 years where they go, we refuse this. It's kind of like what Psalms 2 talks about where you have God and his anointed one. And what's the world saying? Let us break their bands asunder. You know, we, we don't want God's laws and rules. We'll do our own thing. Okay, they're basically sending out messages. We don't want this man to be our king. They're still doing it today. So uh, it's the Jews that vocalize this, but you're going, you know, now 2,000 years, the Lord's still away. Who's, who's announcing the fact right now they don't want Jesus as king? It's people living right now. Don't want Jesus as their king. Don't want him as Lord, Savior. They don't want him. You say, what's, what's this then mean in that paragraph? When Jesus comes at his second coming, he will remove all those that rejected him before he sets up his kingdom reign. When you get to Matthew chapter 25, you have this uh, assembly known as the sheep and the goats. You say, what's it symbolizing? It's symbolizing all the nations that have survived the battle of Armageddon and are standing before the Lord before he sets up his kingdom and there are going to be some that are separated out right then and there because they're goats. They will not be sheep. They will not follow the king. They will not do this and they're separated out and, you know, to to use the term here, they're executed, they're removed before Jesus sets up his kingdom on earth. 
you kind of go, wow, that's really dramatic. Well, you start off with people who survive all of the tribulation. They have Jesus as their king and Lord. They look on him whom they pierce. They believe on him. These individuals have believed on the Lord. They survive through the end of the tribulation, which is an amazing feat. But what the Lord does is he keeps them here. They don't get a resurrection body, whatever. And what they do is they start a new population of people. But he removes all those people initially that want nothing to do with him as king. We don't want him as king. That's why we're fighting against him. And the Lord removes him. Now, let me get to the end note here, and then we'll we'll talk about the implications of this. The faithful servants will be given the responsibility to help rule in the kingdom. You go, faithful servants, disciples of Jesus Christ, followers of him. They're going to be given responsibility in the kingdom. I mean, I'll put it this way. Some have more responsibilities in the kingdom than others. The responsibilities seem to be based on how they did the Lord's business when he was away. There are passages in Scripture where it talks about us ruling with Christ, that we sit on a throne with Him, that will rule and reign with Him. Where are we ruling and reigning with Him? It's when Jesus sets up His kingdom. That thousand-year reign on earth, we will have responsibilities based on how we live our life right now. You're going, wait, is that, that sounds like you're earning your salvation. No, no. It's you having responsibilities and opportunities uh, that others may not have as much of if you're faithfully calling people to follow after this king in this life, it'll be this. Okay, you're going to administrate this part of the world. Or this place here is going to be your responsibility. And you're going, I don't know about that. Okay, what's the kingdom like? The kingdom is when you have the second Adam come back and he rules and reigns over earth and it becomes like that paradise that we were supposed to have in the Garden of Eden. And I thought about this. Can you imagine being Adam back in the Garden of Eden before he sins and the Lord says, okay, you get to tend the garden. Okay, make sure it's running well. No weeds. It's watered all the time. What kind of work is that? But he's given the responsibility to manage this. I thought about this when it comes to the kingdom. If the Lord is going, okay, you're going to have responsibilities for me in the kingdom, helping me administrate this. What's that going to be like when uh, there is no war, there's no need for police, health is really, really good, children live, uh, you know, when they're 100 years old, they're still considered a child, you have animals that don't chew on other animals anymore or people. Uh, you have abundance of crops because you have uh, the people who are um, sowing the crops are catching up with the people who are harvesting the crops. That's how much abundance you have going on on the earth at this time. And so what is it like for us who are going to be here and administrate? I don't know. Now, the question comes up, and we, we had this this morning, and this was, you know, major time of discussion. 
the ones that enter into the kingdom, they'll have children, but those children aren't saved because they're born to saved parents. They're going to have to come to faith in Jesus Christ in that kingdom just like everybody else in the world has ever had to come in faith in Jesus Christ. But they're going to have the opportunity that no one else has. They're going to be able to go to Jerusalem and talk with Jesus. You read the passage in the Old Testament, it talks about, let us go up to Jerusalem. It's the kingdom passages. And the nations are going to come and talk with him, and people are going to be able to talk with the Lord himself. And, and I've thought about this. When you read the book of Ezekiel, it talks about this temple that's going to be here on this earth where Jesus is going to uh, rule and reign from. And one of the things that goes on there, there is a, a restarting of the sacrificial system. I brought this up before. Why would you have a sacrificial system when Jesus has already given his life? You know, we're done with sacrifices. Remember Hebrews? We're done. There's no more sacrifices. Why in the millennial kingdom are you going to have a restoration of some of the sacrifices? Well, think about this. You have a, a group of people who don't see war. They don't see death. They don't see violence. You know, you're not getting this on your local TV. You know, whatever. And you walk into the temple and you watch an animal slain. A lamb bloodshed and you hear the cry as the sheep is uh, is uh, slaughtered and, and this whole thing and a person comes here and goes what's that why is that there and and it's just simply this you have the opportunity as a teaching time to go the one who sits on the throne is known as the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world and by his blood your sins are covered he died to give you the opportunity to be saved, to have your sins forgiven. You got an illustration of this for people who don't know what, what that's like. They're living in a time of peace for a thousand years. The second Adam's ruling like it should have been uh, for a thousand years. And um, we're going to have a part in administrating that. And what that means, I have no idea. But one day, a thousand years ends, Satan's released. Remember, Satan's bound during this time. Satan's released. And the, the question was this morning, how long is it going to be before they rebel against God and God says, okay, done, great white throne judgment? And in talking about it this morning, how long did it take Eve for her to be tempted in the garden? One conversation, a couple of sentences said, she looks at the tree and goes, yeah, I think I have a right to eat this. It looks good. It's probably going to make me wise. It'll make me like God. Sure, I'll eat it. So how long is it going to take for people who don't get saved during the millennial kingdom? They're born in and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. How quickly does Satan have to do something in their mind for them to go, yeah, you know what? That one that sits on the throne, Jesus, he, you know what? He's holding stuff back from us. You know, let's march on him and tell him what we're going to do and whatever. And, and you have this crowd, which you read it in Revelation chapter 20, that number is the sands of the sea that come to surround Jerusalem to fight God. And it's an instant, everything's vaporized, and you immediately have the great white throne judgment. Um, but, you know, we go back to this. What am I doing now? Well, I'm not doing stuff right now to earn rewards. 
But what the Lord's promising here, you're faithful now, and I'll give you some more responsibilities once we set up that kingdom. I'll give you things to, you know, more so than others might have. I'll give you some things to do in that kingdom. Now, somebody asked, said, well, what's it like in heaven, which is eternal? You know, it's what comes after the kingdom reign of Christ. Are we walking around with crowns on our head and going, I've got five. You've only got three. Um, realize we're glorified at that point. There's no more pride. It's gone. And, and more than likely, it's not going to be us. If the, those thoughts cross our mind, we'll look to the throne and go, that's why I'm here. The one who sits on the throne, he sought me. He chased after me. He almost dragged me kicking and screaming into to heaven, but he, he saved me. Praise the Lord. However he works that out, till he gets you to the point where your will is going, okay, I'm willing to get saved. How that works, I don't know. Theologians, you know, die trying to figure that out. Um, but the fact is, is we're not going to be going around going, I'm better than you. Yeah, I got more than you. No, it's just, it, it's the Lord stating, you work now, I'll let you be, you know, have some opportunities, more opportunities than others uh, in the kingdom when I come to set that up. But I'm going to say this, we're probably all going to have responsibilities. Just what they are, we don't know. What's it like to rule and administrate a perfect environment? No idea. I look forward to it. Uh, I look forward to it. Somebody said, you know, why, why would we have to administrate and why would you need administra administrators? Well, think about right after the tribulation and you read what happens to the earth, you've got occasions where you have earthquakes that destroy cities. They shake mountains and move islands and it's across the whole planet. Do you realize there's going to have to be some building projects that take place? You know, reclaiming some of the landscape and, and making it what it should be. And we get to be a part in helping these individuals do that. So, yeah. So this is a, this is a parable that, that is one that I've been referring to, but it's talking about what we get to do in the kingdom. You know, if we're not alive when the kingdom gets set up, eh, okay, you know, I hope they have a good time, you know, in the kingdom. I'll, you know, be observing from, you know, way out in heaven someplace and, and not here. Um, no, we're, we're going to have a part in helping Jesus reign and rule on the earth. We're going to reign with him. So that, that's what this is a challenge for. Telling these people, it's postponed. I'm going away to receive my kingdom. I'm eventually going to come back. So what I'm going to give you to do, you do it faithfully. And I'll be back. Which is to give the gospel. So um, good parable uh, to remind us that you know, what I'm doing right now has significance for later in the kingdom and in heaven. So any, any questions on this? Thoughts that have popped in your head? Yes? Is there anything in the story that suggests like God wants us to be more productive like the one that got 10 than the one that got 5? Like we're, we're, like we're better? Yeah, I, it's okay. So, you know, should we work harder so I can get 10 rather than 5? Um, 
I think what's being pointed here is that it's the faithfulness. You know, it's, it's you know, some bring forth in the, like the parable of the soils, some bring forth 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Um, you know, is it saying, okay, if I get, you know, 10 people saved, I get 10 cities, and, you know, you got five people saved, so you get five cities, you know, whatever. No, that, that's, that's not what it's indicating here. I think it's just showing that there is an indicator of faithfulness, and the Lord just gives responsibility on the fact of faithfulness. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And what exactly? I don't know. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think about what the Lord called Moses to do, and he was like, I don't have a mouth that can speak. Of course, he's, he's given lawyer speak there, so he's really good at speaking. But when he says to the Lord, I, I can't do this. I can't speak in front of the people. And the Lord goes, did I not make the blind, the deaf, and the dumb, and that, and that you can't speak very well, and I'm calling you to do this? Go do it, okay? This is, this is your responsibility. You go do it. I know what I created, okay? You go faithfully do what you're supposed to do. Um, so, Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's more of a faithfulness thing, but it's not so much, you know, if, I, if I'm doing the best I can with my skill set, you're, you're called to faithfulness and giving what you can and um, the opportunities you have. Reflect that out. Anybody else questions on this? I, I've answered some of the questions that we had this morning. I didn't answer them initially when we went through this, but I answered some of them as we went through tonight. So you actually, you know, a little bit more where people are going, you know, what about this? You know. Um to realize that, that the kingdom doesn't last forever. It only lasts for a thousand years. And then you have the great white throne judgment. And after that, when you read in Revelation 21, 22, we have the new heaven and the new earth. People ask, what are we doing in heaven? We're just sitting around on clouds strumming harps. That's all we're doing. And you go, well, why would you do that? Are you going to play violin? Okay, good for you. Um, or whatever that was. Um, but... Um, what he gives us in, as far as our heavenly state, the eternal state, you have the earth that is here. I, I believe that the earth, it talks about the elements thereof are burned with a fervent heat. I don't believe that the whole earth is just completely consumed. I believe it's just, you know, it's cleaned up. Everything that used to be here on earth that we know. And it's a new, new it's not a new, the, the term for new is not that we got a new earth. It's a, you know, new but the same kind. And what happens is that you have this heavenly city, which is a square. It's a cube, excuse me. You say, what's the difference on that? Uh, remember, the Holy of Holies was a perfect cube. Where the Ark of the Covenant was at, it's a perfect cube. So when you have 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500, it's, it's, you know, there is no temple. You go, why? Because you are residing in the Holy of Holies, where God dwells, when you have the heavenly city. But that city has 12 gates to it. And the description in, in, in uh, this new, new place that we'll be at for all eternity, we can go in and out. That's why the gates are always open. There's no night. There's no sun. You go, why is there no need for sun? Uh, because the Lord's the light of what goes on. We, we don't need that. Uh, some ask, you know, why is there no more sea? And, and, and I say that my understanding of this is we don't have huge bodies of water like we have right now. We still have water because you have a river that flows through the middle of that heavenly city and other things. It's, we don't have the large bodies of water on the earth. And we're allowed to enjoy creation as it should be. 
now we're, now we're you know, not just in the merely a, a kingdom where Jesus is ruling, reigning, and has subdued you know, sinful flesh. We're now a part of a kingdom that there is no sin. There's no liar there. There's nobody. There's no one has got a heart of sin a part of this. And we get to be a part of this, and we get to enjoy creation as it's supposed to be. And then go into the city and enjoy the city that the Lord has made and enjoy the things that are there and enjoy his presence and be a part of this. And, and so you go, well, you know, well, I'll be bored after, you know, the first 10 minutes where I'm, you know, strumming my harp and you go, oh, I got those chords down. Great. Okay. You know, let's sing some praise to God. And okay. No, there, what God created mankind for was originally to be in the garden of Eden, to enjoy creation along with him fellowshipping with them. And so what's eternity? We're enjoying creation as it should be with the presence of God being right there that we can go to and be with at all times and see him visibly. And uh, I had questions this morning, you know, are there animals there? We ride on great white horses when we come back with the Lord when he sets up the second kingdom, or excuse me, second coming to set up his kingdom. So I kind of go, you know what, there, there may be in that eternal heavenly location animals because there seems to be horses, so why not, you know, in the heavenly kingdom, eternal kingdom, have animals as a part of it? I'm conjecturing here, but I'm going by what the scripture tells us is that they, we are coming back on real beasts, animals. Yes? I may have missed something, but you're talking millennial kingdom, mm-hmm. but this is not... What I'm talking about now is after the millennial kingdom. That new heaven and new earth. The, the time frame of this is what we currently... Yeah, this parable is covering the time right now we're doing business. He's going to come back and set up his kingdom at his second coming. He's going to come back, and that's what the, the story is talking about. You be faithful until he comes back. Now, you're, some of you are going, well, I'm going to die before he comes back. Well, you're faithful until he calls you to come join him. Um, and then that, and then you'll have the responsibility afterwards. So, yeah. That's when millennial, millennial kingdom starts. You have a thousand-year reign where you have the peace, where Jesus visibly rules. And then after that is the new heaven, new earth. Okay, I was trying to, you know, because this means this and that means that. And when you were talking millennial kingdom, I thought, did I miss something? What, what thing? Yeah, it's not, it's not, we're not talking about the millennial kingdom. This is all about pre, up to when the Lord comes back and he's getting ready to set up his kingdom and he's going to his servants, you know, you faithfully serve, go work in this, you know, work in this village over here, or work with these towns over here, or you get to, you know, work this part of the world, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yes. So there's no marriage in the new heaven and new earth? Nope. No, because we... In the new heaven, new earth, there are no children. You know, there's not another, you know, okay, we're going to start creation part two, you know, and then, okay, we have the same problem. No. Um, In the millennial kingdom, those that survive into the millennial kingdom will have children, get married uh, to people that are there and whatever. But once the great white throne judgment happens and we have um, that, we're... Everyone who has not accepted Christ is separated from God forever, and we have a new heaven, new earth. Nope. Never, never, never a marriage ceremony again. Um, no children. No overpopulation. No, it's not that, you know, the Lord's going, oh, you know what, the city's not big enough. We got more people now. You know, uh, what am I going to do here? Um, no. So we don't have that. Really. 